and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I am Brian Alderman. I am the RCP Education Fellow and Palliative Medicine Trainee. Um, we're going to start with you today. I'm going to do a case. Yeah, so this is a, a case that um, hit me quite hard that I remember from being a core medical trainee. And it's one that raised a few difficult issues and difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a useful basis, I think, to talk about some difficult conversations that we sometimes have to have. So this is a case of a 57-year-old gentleman who I was sent to Clark during an on-call shift as um, a CMT. Mm-hmm. So I think it was probably about half past eight in the evening um, and I was told that this gentleman was in A&E recess and that he was very unwell and being treated for presumed sepsis, I think was the handover from Mm A&E. So he'd had a general deterioration over 48 hours and when I went to see him in A&E, he was very hypotensive despite having had aggressive fluid resuscitation. He had type two respiratory failure on a blood gas significantly elevated inflammatory markers so his white cells were around 18 his crp was just over 200 and he'd been treated by the a e team for sepsis and acute kidney injury with the usual array of broad spectrum antibiotics mm-hmm. and fluids of note for this gentleman who i think was probably relatively young for what we would tend to see on an acute take um he had a background of metastatic colorectal cancer We didn't really know much more than that at the time. So this gentleman had been treated privately throughout his oncological history. So we had no written records, no letters, and no imaging available on the hospital system. So I don't know if you want to reflect on any of those things to start with um, and just kind of highlight the things that that worry you the most about that situation. I I think initially, yeah, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with not really knowing a lot about the past medical history, but the main thing that I need to sort out is he's very acutely unwell. Um, it sounds like he has sepsis. We don't know of the source. He's got acute kidney injury. So I think the key thing is to resuscitate A, B, C, D, E, fluids, antibiotics, and let's get a catheter in, monitor his urine output, check his lactate level, make sure we check in his temperature make sure we've got fluids going through and basically make sure that it's stable and we're treating him appropriately. Again, with the acute kidney injury, really important to stop any offending medications that he may be on, making it worse. And take a collateral history from the family as well. Do they know anything about his past medical history? Is he on any medications? Is he allergic to anything? And any important social history, family history that we need to be aware of. Um, And I think that's what I'd start off with so far, is basically targeting the acute medical problem. Yeah, so I think that's all completely reasonable. He's obviously, from what I've told you, very acutely unwell. Mm -hmm. Um, But our colleagues in A&E had already done a very good job Mm -hmm. of um, starting to address um, Mm -hmm. the issues we talked about. So fluids for his very low blood pressure he wasn't on any nephrotoxic medication so there was nothing to stop Mm -hmm. um he'd been given broad spectrum antibiotics and he had already been catheterized Mm -hmm. but i think the issue here is that he was not showing any signs of improvement his blood pressure wasn't really responding Mm -hmm. and the challenges that were quite specific to this case and that i remember um being quite worried about but then he had a, a sort of slightly complex family situation. So he had 
an ex-wife with whom he had two children but didn't have particularly close contact with them, mm. although they had come to the hospital, um, after his partner had rung them and his partner didn't have a huge amount of information about his oncological history and treatment that he'd had. So we had an urgent need to to clarify what had gone on in the past and mm. where he was in terms of treatment. And the other thing that really worried me was that he just had had no previous conversations about his advanced care planning, um, about what he'd want in terms of escalation, resuscitation and further treatment. And it was very difficult to establish what might be appropriate based on the limited background history that we had at the time. So the reason I introduced this case and I'll, I'll tell you what happens straight away is that he continued to deteriorate and he actually died that night, overnight time. So he deteriorated very quickly despite the treatment that was given. Mm -hmm. But the challenge of this case was talking about the escalation of treatment mm -hmm. um, because it hadn't been addressed before. Yeah. Um, so I think I was going to focus on some of those difficult conversations about resuscitation mm -hmm. and maybe reflect on some ways we've seen it done badly in the past and try and think of some ways that we can facilitate those conversations with patients. Mm. So I don't know if you've got any examples or any bad practice that you've seen or that... I mean, I've been involved in lots of these type of conversations at varying times throughout my career as junior doctor, as a registrar, as a consultant, when I'm on call, when it's a very stressful setting or you know, when you have a bit more time to do it. Um, one case does really stick in my head um, and I'll talk to you about that. It was me who was doing the discussion and I don't know whether I did it well or not, but a complaint was made um, after the event. So it was a 76-year-old man in the resuscitation department who had type 2 respiratory failure and was known to have very end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease was on home oxygen and was bedbound and hadn't been out of the house for a couple of years. He lived with his wife and daughter. Wife wasn't very well, but the daughter was his main carer. And he'd been brought in to A&E acutely unwell. And I walked in, I was the consultant on call. I was a very new consultant, I think about two weeks or something. And this man looked to me like he was going to die. And... I then had to have the discussion with the family and the patient regarding this. At this point, the patient had a very raised carbon dioxide level and was therefore quite drowsy and confused. And it was apparent that this conversation could not be had with him. There'd been no previous discussion with him, no previous discussion with the family regarding what may happen in this situation. So given the... I felt the extreme difficulties in this case was that I was going to be talking about something very distressing to family and the patient and it never been brought up before. So I felt very apprehensive. And on top of all that, it was a very large family. So there was around eight people in the recess area, all very close family, so children. And I was aware that there was one member of the family who wasn't able to make it at that particular time because they lived quite far away and they were on their way. I felt that this discussion could not wait, given how unwell I felt the man was. So I took them into a side room, again, reiterating that the patient couldn't really take part in this conversation, 
Obviously, I would normally strongly encourage that, but because of his confusion and how unwell he was, that was impossible. So I had a chat to the family and explained the situation, explained what um, CPR was and that it wasn't, you know, I didn't feel it was going to be successful. They, which I've had in many of these conversations, were under the impression that do not attempt CPR means do not treat. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think there is a lot of misunderstanding about that, Mm -hmm. that it means withdrawing everything and stopping what you're doing. Yeah. It was therefore very important to me to explain that do not attempt resuscitation means that that's what we just don't attempt resuscitation, but we obviously do everything we can up until that point. So antibiotics, fluids, pain relief is still given. They were the under the misunderstanding that that wasn't the case um, and that we'd just completely stopped treatment. And obviously they were very distressed by that. So we had a conversation about that and explained that. And, and they took this on board. They felt that they couldn't make the decision without their brother who was on the way because they wanted it to be a family decision and I said I understand that ultimately this is going to be a shared clinical decision and if I feel like I need to make the decision before your family member gets here then I will make the decision what are your thoughts about the doctor making the decision ultimately so I think that's a really important question um and it it sort of goes along with two or three major challenges that I've sort of jotted down to think about. So the GMC has some really useful guidelines around sort of ethical guidance for treatment at the end of life. Mm -hmm. And they do say that if a cardiorespiratory arrest is expected um, as an expected part of the dying process and that you don't think CPR will be successful, you can make and record that advanced decision not to attempt CPR. They do recognise that some patients may wish to have CPR, even if the chances of success are felt to be negligible or minimal. Mm -hmm. And they state that it's important to try and explore that understanding. But if you don't feel that it's clinically appropriate, you're not obliged to attempt CPR because we would always think of it as we wouldn't offer someone an operation that we didn't think was going to benefit them. So why Mm -hmm. would we offer CPR? But I think it's such such an emotive issue that... Mm -hmm that sometimes it's difficult for families to draw that comparison in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's so important to document that you've had those conversations. And obviously, you don't want to reiterate the point of causing too much distress, but mm-hmm. repeating yourself and making sure that there's absolute clarity in, in why you're making the decision. And perhaps, you know, if the family say we want a, a second opinion, facilitating that if you can, um, to try and reach a mutual agreement rather than okay. it feeling a bit like a, a battle. Mm. Mm. That's one of the issues that I've certainly um, jotted down here that from personal experience mm. is challenging is that families feel you're stopping everything if you're thinking about a do not attempt resuscitation decision. I think also misinformation about what the likely level of success is going to be so almost this feeling of well my heart has stopped beating Mm. you could restart it again if you wanted to but you've decided not to try is a really sort of difficult um 
understanding that yeah. some people have of, of resuscitation decisions. And another thing um, that I've seen is this perception from families that they're the ones who have to make the decision, actually. Yes, absolutely. And they, they feel that that's a real burden and that they're they're the ones who have to make that call. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising the number of times you uncover that when you delve a bit deeper mm-hmm. um, into, um, into families' feelings about the discussion that you've had. Um, so I think it sounds like you had a very sensible conversation with the family and did the best that you could with the information you had at the time. Um, yes, I felt that at the time too. Um, however, um, I did complete the paperwork. I signed it. I'd had this discussion with all the family members who were in agreement and about two hours later, I'd actually finished my shift, so I left. And when I came in the next day, I noticed that he had passed away a few hours later and was comfortable and was allowed a peaceful, dignified death, which is what the family wanted. And actually, I didn't really think much more about it until a complaint came through. Very, very strongly worded complaint from the family member who hadn't been at the conversation and was very damning against me saying that I'd made this decision without having a conversation with all the family members and that I basically killed his father and that that would be on my head. And why did I make that decision when he clearly could have got better? And I then had to explain my thoughts and my process really behind how that DNAR decision was made. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult because it made me question, had I done the right thing? Should we have trialled this patient on non-invasive ventilation? Should he have gone to the intensive care unit? Ultimately, the outcome wouldn't have been different. But would that have meant that the all the family members would have been happy with the situation? Potentially, but I feel that in this gentleman, it would have been cruel to have gone down the NIV intensive care unit mm-hmm. route because... He was so sick. And when I first saw him, I knew that he was in the end stages of life. And I think that's very, well, it's easier for us to say from a medical perspective Mm. when we've seen this Mm -hmm. in the past and perhaps other people haven't. And there's a balance to be struck between seeming too um, aggressive in our descriptions of what what might happen if we go down these more invasive routes Mm -hmm. um, and between sort of making a sensible decision. This was one of the the challenges that I had with the gentleman I discussed initially. So we we ultimately uncovered the fact that he wasn't for any further oncological treatment, that he did have widespread metastatic disease. Um, And while the decision was made by the seniors on the shift at that time to continue with the active treatment of antibiotics Mm -hmm. um, and fluids, it was decided that he wouldn't be appropriate for escalation to ITU, for example. Um, And again, it's this situation that if his heart was to stop beating, it would be part of an overall dying process rather than anything that could be reversed. But trying to have a conversation with a 57-year-old gentleman who was still awake enough to engage in those discussions was very hard. 
and he just kept reiterating that he wasn't ready to die. He he wasn't ready to go. And we ended up having a slightly unusual conversation, actually, something which I've not done again before. Um, but we talked about how he would imagine his death to be. And Gosh. no one ever says to you that I imagine my death to be surrounded by lots of doctors, lots of tubes, lots of wires, um, having lots of medication given to me through my veins and having needles stuck in me. Everyone talks about being peaceful with their family around them. And actually when he recognized how unwell he was and put this together with what his desires would be for his own end of life care, we reached a mutual decision that this was the right thing. Um, and his family were also able to acknowledge and agree. Um, they stayed at the hospital and he died a few hours later. Um, but it was a difficult, difficult conversation um, because of, I think, the challenge of having it often with younger patients mm -hmm. um, is very hard. And another thing, both of our situations have been very acute. Mm -hmm. And while yes. it might seem difficult in advance of those acute situations, it's even more difficult it's when the hard. deterioration has already happened because you feel just that bit more rushed, mm -hmm. that bit more pressure to, to make a decision and to have those conversations, mm -hmm. um, which you don't always feel you have time to do as sensitively as you might have done if they'd been had a little bit earlier. Is there anything else that you wanted to ask or mention that you've seen if you had the situation again, how would you do it differently or would you do it the same? That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I think ideally, and this is in an ideal world, I wouldn't have had these conversations in the middle of recess mm. with busy um, sort of environment, lots of people passing through, but that was something I couldn't really change at the time. And another thing I couldn't really change was having more information mm -hmm. um, about his background history. So I don't think I would have done anything differently. I think the the end result was as good as we could have made it in terms of the decision making. Um, but I just remember that feeling of feeling the professional need to make that decision, but balancing that up against his own um, needs as a patient and the shock to his family of, of having to to reach these kind of decisions mm. it's what i as an acute physician i break bad news and do do not attempt resuscitation conversations way more than i thought i ever would mm. to be honest and it's something that i do every day i'm at work mm. um when i'm clinical um and this can be any number of patients with any number of conditions most of my patients who i have these conversations with are chronically unwell with end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, metastatic malignancies, very, very elderly and very, very frail individuals. And I, it's frequently that I'm the first person who's discussed it with them. Yeah. And that continues to surprise me that, again, in your situation, you've got a gentleman who you've been told is for no more treatment. Yet this is the first time he's heard about resuscitation yeah and I think certainly now as a 
as I guess a bit more senior and maybe confidence or experience, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm still uncomfortable having these discussions. I don't think I'll ever be comfortable having them, but I do have them more frequently when I feel that it's relevant. Hmm. Um, and how do you go about introducing the fact that you're going to talk about this? Do you have any ways of entering into a conversation about it or do you just see see what happens? Yes, it's. I don't think there's a right way. I think there's a wrong way of doing it. Um, obviously with sensitivity it's usually around the bedside if I'm in A&E or the acute medical unit because we don't have any space mm-hmm. to have these conversations ideally always with family or friends there yeah. and I like to signpost that I'm going to have the conversation mm-hmm. so I won't just say so then what do you think about resuscitation I will say so then what I'd like to do now is to talk about resuscitation and what resuscitation is is if your heart was to stop, we would try to restart it. So try and explain a little bit about it. Explain what it is and what it isn't. Um, And then ask them, have they had the discussion before? Any thoughts about it? Have they discussed it with their families? And then really guide the conversation as to how the patient and their family respond to me. And every conversation's different. And um, I've definitely done it bad sometimes. And I think I've done it well sometimes. Um, But it's... It's tricky. Yeah, I think it is. And it's very different for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the signposting is incredibly helpful because mm-hmm. you you get patients who are very aware of what you want and they can read you like a book yes. and they know what you're going to talk about yeah. and they'll just say, well, I don't want that resuscitation if that's what you're talking about. And it's very yes. straightforward for you. And then you're kind of more open to freely discuss it. But I think the inviting, inviting yourself to discuss it further is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So... If it's okay with you, I'd like to talk a little bit about more more about what we would do if you were to come to become very unwell, and then if you don't mind, I'd like to discuss that a little bit in a bit more detail, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of lead on each stage of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're having these conversations earlier, sometimes you have the luxury of a little bit more time yep. to go back. But obviously, in the two cases that we've discussed, that wasn't possible. Um, which is why I obviously would always advocate trying to speak about these things as early as is reasonable and as and as is possible yeah i think just going forward um we've obviously spoken about resuscitation a very specific intervention at this point but there's an increased move towards using respect forms yes we use Um, those in my trust actually yes and and my previous trust Mm -hmm. as well and they help to um think more broadly about about advanced care planning um, and often we will give them to patients to look at and to have a have a, a chat with their families if we've got time about what they think should be put on the form and what's relevant to them. And it's worth having a look um, at the the Resus Council website yeah. and more information about respect forms and what their aim is to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to empower patients to make their own decisions um, in advance of any sort of emergency situation where they can't have their own say absolutely and what what was also interesting to learn was I never actually knew what respect meant Mm -hmm. and what it stood for um recommended summary plan for emergency care and treatment Mm. it doesn't trip off the tongue particularly easily but but I'm you know I'm glad that I sort of I guess my misunderstanding initially when respect forms first came into use is that they were replacing the do not attempt resuscitation form well actually this is looking more broadly, as you said, and um, looking at any future emergencies 
when patients may not be able to make that decision or they may not have the capacity to actually make that decision. So I found that very useful. Yeah. So I think for me, um, just some useful guidance to consult, as I said earlier, would be the GMC's ethical guidance on CPR and treatment at end of life. It just gives some really helpful solid information about the expectations of you as the decision maker and the clinician um, which you might find helpful just to give you a background understanding before you try and have these conversations with patients i think my second point would be just make really good notes about the conversations you've had particularly around issues if a patient said they don't want you to discuss it with their family make Mm. sure that that's been clearly documented um, and that you've explored with the patient the reasons that they don't want you to discuss it Mm Um, And I think if you try and have these conversations as early as possible, it can give you a bit more time to discuss things in more detail um, and hopefully more sensitively to, again, empower patients to make, Mm -hmm. to be involved fully in the decision making. Mm -hmm. You raise one really important point, and that's documentation. Mm -hmm. So I think we document poorly generally, and certainly any discussion like this needs to be documented in the notes as well as on the form Mm -hmm. and who the discussion was held with who was present yeah so what family members and any other staff yeah no completely agree Mm. so thank you so much for bringing that to us today Bryony. i'm just going to highlight a paper that was done and published by the royal college of physicians it's called talking about dying how to begin honest conversations about what lies ahead and this was published in October 2018 and this is a really really good document about sort of looking and the key recommendations say that ask the patient if they would like to have the conversation which we discussed that all healthcare professionals reviewing patients with chronic conditions should initiate shared decision making and think about advanced care planning Conversations about the future can and should be initiated at any point. So both of our cases talked about um, the acute setting, Mm -hmm. but actually this can be done at any point. And also think about the language that you're using Mm -hmm. because patients do look at the language and interpret it and their family very, very different. There is also a very good Breaking Bad News free e-learning course for members on the college website that has our very own Hussein, uh, our previous co-host of the podcast in a starring role. Again, that's talking about breaking bad news. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.